Welcome to Sports Performance Radio, the science of athletic excellence. Welcome everyone to Sports Performance Radio. As always, I am your host, B. Chimez, and I'd very much like to thank each and every one of you for tuning in yet again. This show is kind of interesting. I'm sure I always say something like that. I guess I, I never accuse myself of putting out a bad show. But, uh, in, this, in this case, there is a little bit of an interesting backstory. The guest that I intended to bring to you this month had a bit of a personal tragedy and was completely unable to uh, do my show. They had some pretty serious issues to attend to. And uh, I wish them the best. And there's absolutely no uh, no hard feelings. Just, you know, a radio show is considerably lower down the uh, tier of importance than, you know, your personal life, your family, that sort of thing. So um, I was facing the possibility of not having a show for this month, um, which is something that I've not had happen. But it's certainly an eventuality that can come up. And uh, I just casually mentioned uh, to last month's guest and good friend, uh, Dr. Mike Isratel, that, uh, you know, uh, my, my guest is unavailable. I may have to just do a filler show. That sucks. I've never had to do that. And uh, he offered up. He said, hey, why don't you call this guy? And forward, forwarded to me a name and email. And he said, he's a great guy. He'll be a great guest. Trust me. And, of course, I do trust him. Uh, so made the necessary contacts. A few days later, I was able to record this interview you're about to hear with Temple University professor, Dr. James Hoffman. And he really, really gave a great show. And uh, I want to, before we jump right into the interview with uh, Dr. James Hoffman, I want to just mention that, first of all, this is not maybe the most sexy topic. It's not uh, something everybody, everybody wants to jump at nutrition and drugs and training and uh, sometimes lifestyle and recovery are the thing that people are actually missing. Uh, it's easy to find a new way to train hard. It's easy to find a new drug to take to let you train hard. But um, the idea of actually recovering from that training and systematically and, and in an organized fashion is, uh, is something that isn't covered a lot. So this is really going to be an interesting show on that point. And... There's something else that I want to point out to everybody as they listen to this. This show really, really, the, the talk that uh, James Hoffman gives really underlies, in my opinion, the beauty and simplicity of science. It is an exceedingly complicated topic with a million different inroads, caveats, and conundrums. But at the same time, the overriding message, the overlying principles are incredibly simple. You cannot listen to this show, and I can tell you right now, everything you're about to hear boils down to train as hard as you can without crossing over into the overtraining barrier, and rest as hard as you can, i.e. via relaxation. Train really, really hard, and try to relax really, really hard. And that covers everything you're about to hear. As simple as that topic is, the science of why those two points are for real is incredibly complicated. And Dr. James Hoffman does an exceptional job at explaining them. And along the way, he explains away an enormous amount of myths, 
uh, on on supplements, on training strategies, on recovery gadgets and goofy shit that you would possibly waste your time on, possibly waste your money on, uh, possibly waste your emotional investment on. So the overriding message is very, very simple. But the science of why then begins to explain so many other things. And now you suddenly have more time on your hands, more money on your hands, a better outlook on the world. So this is really one of those things where the message is very, very simple, but you still need to pay attention to each and every word because the way the message is delivered is actually the magic. So I really, really enjoyed lectures as a college student, and I would have really enjoyed this guy's lectures because he has a gift for making a really kind of mundane topic interesting, exciting, and you actually want to follow along with it as you're hearing him. It's, uh, it, it makes the mundane interesting and exciting, and I, I think it's really something that's going to uh, really going to be effective. If you take the time and listen, uh, I don't think you're going to walk away with any kind of revelation, but I think you're going to walk away with a lot of explanation, and it's going to help you make much better decisions in the future about your own training and the organization of your training and the organization of your recovery which really you need to think of, as Dr. James explained, you need to think of as part of your training strategy rather than some add-on, bolt-on extra thing that, oh, I'll do this uh, to, to fix that. And it's not the case. They're actually the same thing. So with no further ado from me, you're going to hear a couple of ads, and then you're going to hear my phone interview with Dr. James Hoffman of Temple University. You're listening to Sports Performance Radio. Evil Genius Sports Performance is now accepting a limited number of new clients. If you would like a consult, please email via the Team Evil GSP website. All right, ladies and gentlemen, as promised, we are here with another exciting guest. This show, I sincerely believe, is going to be the show that you never knew you needed. And once you hear it, you're going to realize, wow, that was the stuff that put me over. So with no extra to do, I want to introduce Dr. James Hoffman, and he is going to talk to us about recovery modalities and long-term recovery strategies for sports performance. Doctor, are you there? Yo, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm excited about this. I love doing the quirky shows that people aren't expecting, and I really think that you have the potential to, to really knock one out of the park here. So. Uh, really quick, introduce yourself, who you are, what you do, where you're from, and then let loose the hounds of hell of recovery. Yeah, for sure. Well, hopefully I can deliver on the quirkiness. So uh, my name is Dr. James Hoffman. I'm a professor over at Temple University in Philadelphia, and I'm also a uh, sports performance consultant for Renaissance Periodization. And I'm hoping to talk to you guys today a little bit about recovery strategies for sport. This is something that, you know, I'm very passionate about. It's a very hot topic in the field right now. And there's just all sorts of miscommunications, errors, and just fundamental flaws in a lot of the things that are being taught and preached about recovery. And, you know, one of the big things that we find with recovery modalities is that a lot of people have tried to transfer what they have learned from medicine, physical therapy, and athletic training and have falsely kind of made this assumption like, okay, well, all of those things must absolutely be true for recovering from hard training, right? So if I take the same concepts that I do for healing and injury management and rehabilitation, 
all those must be true for uh, hard training, right? And what we find is like, yeah, there's just... Did you just casually insult Kelly Starrett? Because I think that's... No, 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 no. You did. <laughs> no, I, it's not meant to be, at least. Uh, you know, here's the deal, right? So there are people like that out there. There's like Kelly Starrett, um, uh, Dr. Quinn Hanak. There are some really great people out there who do uh, like physical therapy, movement analysis. So what we're saying is that's its own unique thing, right? And unfortunately, what some other people have done is taken what they have said and said, hey, these are things that you need to do for injury recovery or pain management or whatever. And they say, okay, well, that must be true for recovery from training. And what we're saying is hold the phone. Those are actually two different things. Recovery from injury, recovery from training are two different concepts. Do they overlap a little bit? Sure. But we don't necessarily want to treat them the same way. So, you know, that's exactly, you know, you hit it right on the head right there, right? People say like, oh, well, Kelly says this or, you know, these other PTs or these other doctors say this or that. And sometimes they kind of miss the, the big picture where we're, we're not actually talking about healing in that sense. What we're trying to do is recover, but also adapt. And this is another area where a lot of people fall short. So first and foremost, right, like what I like to say in my class is uh, first rule of college, words have meaning. When we're talking about recovery, we kind of have to be clear with what we're, we're talking about. So if we're thinking about it in like a biological system sense, it's something that I'm sure you're really familiar with. Usually when we're talking about biological stressors, we're talking about a return to baseline characteristics, right, whatever that is. So we have some stress, we have negative feedback, and then we hopefully return to baseline. But, you know, greatest concept anyone can ever learn, ever. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, but the problem with that idea is that, you know, who goes into the gym and busts their ass and does, you know, 10 sets of squats to return to baseline, right? Who does, who wants to just come in and leave the same way that you, you, you showed up, right? Nobody wants that. You want to come in and get better. So unfortunately for us, that kind of just general biological definition of recovery falls short because we want to recover and adapt. We want to supercompensate, get bigger, faster, stronger than we were before. So then we say, okay, how do we define recovery in the sense of, you know, sport and exercise science? And it's kind of hard to say. One of the things that um, Dr. Israel, my colleague, and I like to say is a return to the ability to do overload training, meaning when you can continue training uh, hard enough to generate overloads or, you know, as we said, disrupt homeostasis again. So the answer is probably kind of somewhere in between there where we say we have to be able to bounce back to what we normally can do so that we can continue training hard. What we're not talking about, right, is doing training that, A, does not drive any type of adaptation or stuff that is meant to recover from injury. So one of the problems that we run into is people say, okay, well, if all I need to do is recover, then I'm just going to keep pushing it, pushing it, pushing it, pushing it with my training and just keep going as best I can, right? Well, then you run into a problem. Sometimes people encounter staleness, plateauing, stuff like that. And what we find is there's kind of a fine point where you can keep training really, really hard and you can recover with our very, very basic definition. We say, okay, well, I can continue training, but you're actually not experiencing any positive adaptations anymore. That's what we call staleness, right? And it's something that most of us have encountered at some point or another. So we have to figure out that sweet spot where we're training really hard, we're doing as much training as we can tolerate, but we are still making positive improvements. So my goal Wait, for say, our discussion... I, I, want, I want to hold you up here because this is something that comes up in a lot of talks with a lot of different people. You mentioned Mike Isretel. Um, I've, I've even found this with talking about some of the nutritional people. When you say, you know, quote, training benefit, you're specifically meaning driving a characteristic like hypertrophy or strength development or something like that. Because I point out to people often, yes. and, and I get kind of funny looks, 
is that even training with no generation of hypertrophy or generation of, of strength development, speed development, whatever, the, the, the consistent practice of the actual thing can still be an improvement, though considerably less quantifiable. Yeah, for sure, right? And so, you know, I think to kind of differentiate, when we're dealing with sports, usually we're dealing with training fitness for specific underlying characteristics, right? We're saying either fitness characteristics, strength, or or some performance benefit, right? I want to shorten my sprint time or want to increase my throw distance. So we want that training to be overloading and specific to whatever it is that we're doing. So then we kind of run into that boundary where we're saying, okay, well, if I'm just doing training that's similar but is not pushing the boundaries of what I'm trying to accomplish, then it's like, okay, are you really doing sport training anymore, right? Then you're maybe just training for health and fitness, which is fine, but then it's kind of deviates outside of the, the, the realm of discussion. You know what I'm saying? Maybe that sounds meaner than it meant to, but... No, absolutely not. But there is there is still even value to just... Um, Skill, quote, skill fitness training. You know, I run into that a lot. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, you know, like baseball players or something. They, you know, Just the repetitive act of throwing, even in a non-overload fashion, still can have, you know, neuro, neuro coordination characteristics that ultimately, if they don't improve them, they at least prevent decline over time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So if we're talking about, like, skill acquisition, skill refinement, or, like, technical improvements, those things are an absolute must, and that must also be accounted for when we're talking about recovery. And so one of the terms that uh, Mike and I like to pitch around is this idea that Mike has kind of coined and then we have continued to refine over time is what we call maximum recoverable volume, Correct. which is essentially the most amount of training that you can do from all sources and still recover and make those positive improvements. Now, you gave a great example with the baseball player, right? So when we think about, like, powerlifting, uh what what type of training goes into powerlifting? Hmm. Well, there's strength training, and there's strength training. It's just strength training, right? There's not really. It's not very. Um. In terms of the amount of inputs going in, right? It's basically just strength training. Maybe a little bit of technique work here or there, but it's mostly strength training, right? And, and so we some you know, some some you know high force development plyometrics in the final four weeks, but yeah, right. Forty eight yeah. weeks. So a we year can say is, the, uh, it's strength training. Yeah. Exactly. So what we can say then is if we're, if we're thinking about maximum recoverable volume for a sport like powerlifting, it's like, okay, well, that can largely be explained by how much strength training I can tolerate. But then you brought up the great example of like a baseball player. Okay, so what, what kind of inputs do we have for a baseball player? Well, we have sport practice, right? They have to practice hitting, catching, fielding, throwing, all that stuff. In addition to their games, their sprint training, right? Their strength training. They, they may or may not be doing some type of conditioning, maybe some agility stuff. So now we have training inputs from all sorts of different sources. So we can't just say, okay, well, MRV is only explained by strength training. And then you can go on an even crazier level. You can look at a sport like CrossFit or mixed martial arts, which has dozens of inputs, dozens of training sources, all of which you have to manage in your fatigue management strategy. So that's kind of what we're talking about here, where we're saying one of the big prerequisite steps to understanding recovery is actually understanding the maximum recoverable volume, either for yourself or for the individuals that you're working with, because there's going to be a high degree of variability between person to person. So for your, like for yourself, you've been training for 30 years almost, it seems, at this point. Five, 35. There you go. You are going to need a significantly different dose than our average middle school or high school athlete who is relatively brand new to training, and even from other uh, college athletes or semi-professional athletes, right? There's just going to be a lot of individual differences, which largely can be explained by just your training age, how long you've been in the training process, how much skill you have. 
So one of the prerequisite steps we say is, you know, a lot of people want to jump right into recovery modalities. They say, how much drug should I be taking? How much uh, cryotubing should I be doing? How much time should I be spending icing, right? But they've actually missed that prerequisite step where they might actually be chronically under-training, where recoverability is not a limiting factor. They're just not training as much as they could. Or they might be chronically overtraining, where they're actually training beyond their natural recovery ability. And then those recovery modalities, believe it or not, are insufficiently powerful to alleviate that fatigue. Well, it's, let me, it's one of these fine-tuning Let me interject things. a question, and maybe too early in your talk. You may, maybe you're going to mention this later, but be, being the biologist – this immediately comes to mind. The concept of the, you know, one of the very early books I read, The Stress of Life, is that everything you apply to a physiology, everything you apply to an organism, ultimately has some biological cost. At what point in this whole scenario do, quote, recovery methods actually cost too much? Oh, we're going to get to that. So okay. I, okay, that, that's that, the immediate question that leapt to my mind, and I, I thought it was premature, but it just, it just, I couldn't contain myself. I apologize. No, 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 you're totally good, and that's a great question. What we find is that just like everything else, nothing is a freebie. There is no magic pill. There's no magic pants that you can put on. There's no magic light day. What we find is that everything operates on a cost-benefit analysis. So one of the things that we'll talk about with recovery modalities, right, is that there are pros and there are cons to using certain things. And then what we find is that some things might actually be really good in terms of enhancing recovery, but they also might be not as good in other areas like driving the adaptive processes, which is kind of what you were alluding to. So we will compare and contrast that just a little bit. But anyway, so uh, what I was trying to get at here is a lot of people miss that prerequisite step where they actually don't fully understand how much training they can actually tolerate. And then all this other stuff that we're going to talk about can just go out the window. You can just throw it out on the expressway because they're insufficiently powerful to actually alleviate chronic overtraining or just not training enough, right? So there's kind of a sweet spot that we have to hit where you have to be able to be training very hard. And what I find is that more often than not, people tend to be on the undertraining side. They have not actually really pushed the boundaries of their recoverability, and they're probably just not getting as much out of their training as they could, and they are still seeking out recovery modalities, which at this point are not a limiting factor, right, because they're just not doing as much training as they need to do. So it's kind of interesting, right? So that's kind of a, a step zero. It's a prerequisite step where we have to say you have to understand fundamentally how much training this person can tolerate at any given time, and that might vary from a hypertrophy phase and a strength phase and a power phase or during different sports seasons, right? That is going to be highly individualized, and so that's our prerequisite step. We say everything else has to wait until we know how much training this guy can tolerate. After that, our recovery modalities become this very nice fine-tuning element where we say now we're really trying to focus on getting the most out of the training that we can. So that's one thing I like to say right off the bat because I see this more often than not where people are like, let me just up the dose or let me just ice myself all the time. And it's like, well, you're probably just training too much at this point or maybe not enough potentially. So that's something that's have, interesting. Do you have a defined set of diagnostic tools to really help someone understand whether or not they are in that zone? Or is that just a, a thing where if your performance has tanked, you're somehow, quote, wrong and you need to address it? Yeah, yeah. So we can do it quantitatively and qualitatively. What I usually like to say is if you're doing it quantitatively, you want to take at least three measurements. So what we find, if you look at a lot of the fatigue management monitoring literature, there's a number of different variables you can look at, and we can spend all day talking about them. 
Um, but what we find is that any one measure by itself doesn't necessarily seem to be indicative of anything, right? You can, and this is something as a coach you see all the time, right? Where somebody might write down that they're having, a, they're feeling really anxious and you're like, oh man, that's one of my, my red flags, anxiety. And then you go talk to them and, you know, their boyfriend broke up with them or they had a baby or some weird shit, right? And it's just, does that mean they're overtrained? No. So what we usually like to say is we need to get a physical, uh, physiological variable, something like a heart rate or a blood marker or something like that. We also like to see a performance variable. I will actually need to see some type of performance decrease, whether it was like a performance, uh, sport performance or a gym-related thing, and then some type of perceptive measure. So we're hitting kind of the big three, right? Performance, physiology, perception, or psychology. That's how I like to, to preach it quantitatively. That's where we say, okay, if I have red flags in all of those areas, I know that something is probably up. But does it have to be like that? Absolutely not. We can also do it a little bit more qualitatively where we can go back to our previous definitions. So we say, okay, well, we're saying recovery essentially is a return to baseline. So let's say I go into the gym and I do four by 10 squats and I go through it and I'm like, man, that was tough, but you know, I got through it. I'm going to push it a little bit next week. You come in next week, you do five by 10 squats and you're like, damn, that was hard. I grinded through it, but I'm okay. And I think I can keep going. I'm going to push it a little bit more. You come to the gym again the next week and you try six by 10 squats and you unwrap the first one and it's shaky. You feel like crap and you only get seven reps. And you're like, damn, this is a weight that I know I could have gotten 10 at. You try it again. In set number two, you get six reps. And you're like, oh man, this is just not happening today. What has happened? By definition, you have not returned to your baseline characteristics. If you could do a weight that you normally could do for 10, now you cannot. Now we're saying you have actually overreached at some point which is probably that last week when you did that 5 by 10. So what's the answer? Well, the answer we know is that person probably needs to be able to do four to five sets as kind of their working maximum recoverable volume. And this is a, obviously a gross simplification of what this looks like. But that's the general idea where he said, you know what, four sets, no big deal. Five sets, that was the tipping point for me where I'm really pushing how much I can handle. I couldn't even try six sets because I was already broken down. That's kind of an easy, quick way, right, where you can kind of get a feel for it. And a lot of this is just using your coach's eye and just being intuitive and saying, you know what, like I did this amount of squats or this amount of deadlifts and it ruined my life that next week. It manifested in ways in my in my activities of daily living. It manifested in my work life. It manifested in my ability to be normal at home. That's when you know you're really starting to overreach. That's when you know shit got real, right? Where you really pushed it and it really affected you. That's kind of the more quali excuse me, qualitative way where we say, you know, if you know, if you feel it, if you feel that fatigue, that overwhelming sense of like, I am beat up, that's probably a pretty good indice. And then if you're keeping good logs on what you're doing, you say, okay, well, I know that I trained five days per week. I did a volumes approximately of, you know, however many kilograms. You can get a pretty good idea of what that looks like for the individual. But again, I like to say don't rely on one measure because just because somebody's sprint time wasn't great on one day or their jumps weren't great on another day doesn't necessarily mean something totally, you know, astro terrible is happening. But it's an industry, right? We say, okay, something might be up. It might warrant more investigation. Does that kind of make sense? No, you know, it so absolutely like does. You know, I, I consistently point that out to people is that sometimes, you know, especially when you're talking about in isolation of one workout, the number of variables available to have a impacted that training session go far beyond the physiology you know the temperature the humidity the time of day the fucking people around you the music on the radio so many things can impact your individual performance that it's not fair to take one workout and say oh that means i that means i'm overtrained or that means i've overreached or that exactly. means i'm injured uh it doesn't it, that's not the case exactly right so we just don't want to put too much stock into one 
measurement. I like to say if you're if you're if you're being the sports scientist or the exercise scientist and you're collecting data, try and get one from each big area. Uh, if you're a coach and you're not necessarily doing that type of analysis, use your coach's eye. See how much they've done. Get their feedback. Look at their technique. Technique is one of the first things that breaks down under fatigue, right? You can look at somebody, and if they look like wobbly, crazy, or all over the place like uh, wet spaghetti, that's usually a pretty good indice that something's wrong. They're probably not where they need to be. And that's just an easy, uh, quick coach's eye kind of thing, right? So that's kind of our prerequisite step. We say you have to be training within what we call the maximum recoverable volume, doing as much training as you can while still being able to recover and adapt. After that, we kind of can start breaking down our recovery modalities into certain little subgroups. And the first subgroup should be a no-brainer for most people or what we call passive recovery methods. This is where we are, as the name implies, doing nothing, right? And the most important one that we can do, obviously, is sleep. There's no way around it. There's no amount of heroin or drugs you can do in the long term to overcome not sleeping. There's no amount of food you can eat. It just doesn't happen, right? You need to sleep. It's been well established. Then the question becomes, okay, well, how much sleep do I actually need? Generally, what the recommendations appear to be is, on average, people should be aiming for a consistent six to eight hours per night. Now, that can be variable depending on if you were, if you have an unusual schedule or if you are awake for a prolonged period of time. But for most people on average, especially if you are an athletic population, probably somewhere around six to eight hours per night consistently, consistency being a big part of that. So if you have a graveyard shift, if you're a nurse and you work weird hours, can you maybe take a 12-hour sleep here or there? Absolutely. It's just not necessarily something you want to get into the habit of doing because you can be subject to things like sleep inertia, which will make you feel like crap. Uh, it's like when you sleep too long and then you wake up, you feel worse, right? That's what that is. So it's just something in general, there's a dose response with sleep, meaning too little is not good. Too much is also not good. And that optimal range seems to be about six to eight. We can also use things like naps to kind of supplement with sleeping. Naps are another good area of fatigue alleviation throughout the day. We just don't want to use them in lieu of getting a proper amount of sleep. And the dose response for uh, napping is actually really interesting. It's actually about 20 to 30 minutes for the most part. So it's one of those little quick little kind of cat nap kind of things where you just close your eyes, relax for a little while, set an alarm for about 30 minutes. That alarm's going to go off and you're going to be like, I could, I could obviously keep going here, right? I'm going to keep going. Nope, don't do that. Wake up. Get up. You'll feel better. You'll feel more refreshed once you start moving around. This is kind of funny, but I actually... There's actually a study on my desk right now. I'm, I'm a big uh, coffee fanatic. I'm, I'm literally a maniac about coffee. And so anytime I see anything coffee or caffeine related, I immediately gobble it up. There's I actually two about new studies, but one, in, one particularly interesting that um, they're, they're now suggesting that uh, caffeine-mediated naps are actually more beneficial than naps alone. You beat me to it. That was the next thing I was going to say. Yep, absolutely. And it's something – give it a try. It's really funny. It works. I don't like coffee, but I like energy drinks. So if you have a coffee – or a monster, right as you're planning on winding down, right, 20, 30 minutes later, the effect of that caffeine ingestion is going to start kicking in, and then you're going to come out of that nap like, ah, ready to go. It's going to yep, be great. It's, and it's, yeah, I just read the study, and it, it's really interesting. It goes into a more biochemical, you know, you know, analysis of how that happens, but it appears to be uh, completely valid. It, complete, it appears to be completely effective, and it actually uh, mitigates some of the deeper sleep cycles so it actually prevents you from that over-napping inertial period. Yeah, it's really good. And just like you said, you know, there's that, there's that dose response in there that caffeine helps you not actually oversleep, right? I usually recommend people take an, uh, make an alarm for themselves just because, like, you know, some people, once they lay, lay down, they're basically like full-on narcolepsy, right? My roommate, my old roommate looked like that. So set an alarm 
That way it forces you to get up. And if you have the caffeine, it kind of encourages you to wake up anyway because you'll just wake up at that point and just go into a nice relaxed state, quiet, maybe uh, low light conditions or maybe some light ambient sound or something. And that's a great one. Now, we just want to keep in mind, we don't want to rely on nap uh, in lieu of getting enough sleep. So a lot of people will just sleep for three hours a night and then try and take naps throughout the day. That strategy does not seem to be as effective as getting a proper a good rest every single day. So those are kind of, sleep is the big one, right? There's no way around it. And so a lot of people will be like, hey, man, I'm trying to up my recovery. How much trend should I be taking? And I'm like, how much sleep are you getting? And they're like, oh, you know, three to four hours a night. Like, fuck, you get to get out of here with that. You don't, it's not about upping the dose. It's about you need to set time to actually get restful sleep. Now, on a similar note, one this is, this is where I know I, some people kind of, this leans towards some like hippy-dippy kumbaya stuff. One of the biggest underlying factors in recovery is getting a person into a relaxed state. And I know this sounds kind of silly, but it is the overriding factor for almost all the things that we're going to talk about. Bringing somebody who is in a heightened physical state, heightened psychological state into a lowered one. And simultaneously, yes, exactly. Again, that's almost homeostasic again. It is. It's 100%. And this is like where sometimes people will be like, oh, are you getting into like, you know, kumbaya stuff? No, not at all. What we find is that a lot of the recovery modalities out there can simply be explained by time spent relaxing. So sometimes people will say, what about doing yoga or what about doing like breathing patterns or what about, you know, meditation? All those things are confounded simply by bringing your from a heightened state into a less heightened state, simply by relaxing. And I would make a very strong case that most of the recovery modalities out there that are kind of getting a lot of hype and attention, the biggest confounder of most of those is actually just time spent relaxing. And that same can be, you know, basically applied to what we already talked about with sleep and napping. So one of the big ticket items that we say is you have to actually get good at relaxing throughout the day. All the time that you are working or training, you might have to rely on your stress responses, right? So if you're trying to set up for a huge squat PR, a huge deadlift PR, you want that stress response. You want to call on that Thor's hammer and get that lightning bolt so you can go crazy, right, and hit a huge number. That's great. Or if you live where I live in North Philadelphia and homeboy's trying to stab you, you got to have a stress response so you can fight or flight, right? That's good. That's a good thing. You do not want that response when you are in resting conditions. As you said, we have conflicting pathways, sympathetic versus parasympathetic. We have conflicting endocrine responses as a result, and then we also have conflicting cellular responses. We're looking at things like mTOR versus uh, AMPK. There's a lot of stuff going on, and unfortunately, they tend to not work very well at the same time. They tend to work very well when one is highly active and the other is more passive and vice versa. So, one of the things that we tell our, uh, we, we really encourage athletes is to get good at relaxing. So what does that mean? That means when you are in a state where you do not need to be alert, you do not need to be physically alert, mentally alert, you need to bro- practice bringing yourself down and remaining calm and relaxed throughout the day. That might involve taking a load off, right? Sitting instead of standing. That might involve practicing stress management, not freaking out all the time just because somebody flipped you off, gave you the bird while you were driving, or because your boss is bugging you at work. It sounds like hippie stuff, but it actually makes a big difference. If you can get yourself into a relaxed state at all the times that you are not in a stress state, you will be enhancing your recovery more than you realize. And then the added benefit, this is where I think it gets really interesting, right? All systems operate on dose response. So what happens when you are chronically wigged out all the time, whether it's from training or from stressors, 
Well, you actually get desensitized to that stress response. So now when you're getting stabbed in North Philly or when you're trying to hit that squat PR and you're trying to get that lightning bolt to come down, it doesn't come down anymore as hard as you'd like it to. Why? Because you have become desensitized to that response because you are used to chronic overstress. So not only is relaxation important for triggering our anabolic pathways, making sure that we are moving into recovery, especially in the post-exercise period. But it's also important for maintaining the power of our stress response so that we can actually use it when we want it, which I think is, you know, kind of a tit for tat, very, very important. So what I usually recommend for people is this, is the following. If you are an athlete, you are trying to be the best. If we're talking about professional, you know, world champion, possibly Olympic level, you should be relaxing at all times throughout the day when you are not working or training. Now, for most people, that is a completely unrealistic expectation. There's no way, right? Everyone has jobs. They have family. They have all sorts of obligations that they have to hit. So what's a more practical recommendation? Set time aside throughout the day, especially in the post-exercise period. So when you train, give yourself an hour after training where you are off your feet and you do nothing, absolutely nothing. You have your workout, your post-workout nutrition. You do have no emails, no work stuff. Nobody's bugging you. You're just going to sit, calm, relax have some food, get off your feet for a little while. Very, very important if you can do that. In addition, we also recommend once all your major business for the day has concluded, right, you've come home from work, you've taken care of your family, your training is done, set one hour out of your day. Just take one hour where you are doing only what you want, right? That can be just watching TV, doing your favorite hobby. I like to watch anime and pet my cat on the couch, right? It's too holy stupid, but who cares? It's what I want. No work emails, nobody's bothering you. It's just one hour out of your day set aside simply for you to bring yourself from a heightened state to a reduced level of uh, alertness, right? Take that hour, and then after that, you can do whatever you want. So it's, it's important. It's, it sounds kind of like hippie kumbaya stuff, but actually practicing bringing yourself into a relaxed state, practicing managing your stressors and not being chronically wigged out all the time, like not just going into apocalypse because you've got another email today, Right. That takes practice. And a lot of people are just always wigged out all the time. And it's impossible for them to actually get good recovery at that point. So another area that I think is really important, really funny. Uh, <laughs> so it's a big one. So then I, if we're looking at that. We, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I, I pretty much stress all of that. I use a considerably different language with the people I deal with. But uh, I, I agree with that more more than you could imagine, uh, especially among the crowd. I, I deal with a lot of, well, not a lot, but I do deal with some bodybuilders, and they always have that I-can't-gain-weight attitude. And I'm like, well, first thing you need to do oh, is get out of here. sticking energy. You know, you're pissing away yeah. 100 calories a day just shaking and, and raging. You know, if you add up those 100 calories <laughs> a month, you would have gained a pound. Yeah. You know, the, like, have a hard time gaining weight. Uh, you know, I'm not very sympathetic. I knew what it was like to, like, you know, for I'm not a huge guy, but, you know, like, yeah, when I first got up to 240 pounds, I was miserable. It was really hard. You know, so I think a lot of people just aren't used to pushing the boundaries of their training, how much they're eating. And then, like you said, like, okay, well, if you would have just actually not wasted energy on mundane, stupid stuff, you probably could have gained a few extra pounds. And, you know, it's just crazy. So, yeah, so that's a big one. So our passive recovery modalities are probably the most powerful. So those are all things that we kind of have to just do when we're not training. We kind of then move into our active recovery methods. And so this is what... You know, I, I'm a training guy. My background is in training. Uh, and so this is what I really get excited about. And uh, active recovery methods are some of the most, most well-documented methods of promoting recovery out there. They have looked at it to death. And what they have found is that taking a light training session, so what I like to call a light day, can many times, very often, actually have a greater fatigue alleviating effect 
than doing nothing at all. So it's kind of trippy, right, where you say, okay, I have somebody they're training hard. I have to make sure I'm managing their fatigue over time. One of the best strategies out there is to just have them take a light day every now and again. So a day where they come in, they do the exact same stuff that they normally do. So if you're dealing with a power lifter, they do their same power lifting training. They set up their squat, their deadlift, their bench with the best technique that they can, all the same good bar pass, same good movements, but we're just bringing the volume down, probably around 50% or so. So this is a really, really powerful one. And they've, they've looked at a number of different modalities, and they all result in the same thing. If you actually take a light training day where the intensity can be the same or reduced by about 15% of the relative intensity or so, that is okay. What has to come down for sure is the training volume. So you take about 50% of the volume that they would normally do. They come in. They probably feel like shit because they've been training really hard. But they'll come out of that training session feeling very refreshed, feeling very, very good. So incredibly powerful, incredibly good. It's something that I recommend people have at least one light day throughout the week. If you're in a, a really crazy training program, if you're in like a sporting program where you're training three times a day potentially, like kind of like our martial arts athletes, you might have to take maybe two or three tra uh, light training sessions per week, depending on how crazy your training is. But it's something that is, uh, it's hard to do for a lot of people because a lot of people have that old school football mentality where everything's life and death all the time, right? Where you have to come in and just bust your balls and be puking your guts out the whole time. That is not true. That's a really terrible way of fatigue managing. We should have planned periods throughout the training cycle, whether they're acute or chronic, where the training is not always super hard. And in fact, some of the training can actually help us promote recovery when done properly. And so a light training day, you know, I coach women's rugby. So an example for a sport practice type stuff might be if they come in to their sport practice, we'll warm up, we'll throw the ball around, we'll play a couple games, we'll keep contacts down, we'll keep um you know, tackling, scrimmaging, down. And instead of doing a two-hour practice, we'll do a one-hour practice, play some games, and then we're out of there, right? If you want to do a training, uh, like a lifting example, if you have somebody who's like a power lifter or a strong man or whatever, they come in, they set up their normal stuff. If they're going to do some some push movements, maybe do a little bit of squat, maybe do a little bit of press, do the same stuff you normally did. If you were going to come in and do a five-by-five five squat, you're going to set up your squat, the intensity is going to be pretty close to where it normally would be. And instead of doing, you know, five sets to five, do two sets of five or three sets of five, and then move on to the next one. It should move a lot more quick, uh, excuse me, a lot more, uh, should move a lot faster, and they should be done a lot earlier than normal, but that's okay. They're going to come back to that next training session very hungry and very physically able. So light days, probably one of the most well-documented recovery strategies out there. It's amazing. So on a similar note, we can take our light day concept and we can blow it out a little bit longer, and this is what most people refer to as a deload or an unloading period. And this is really good. So our light days are good for managing uh, acute fatigue, right, where we're saying kind of fatigue during throughout the week. We say, okay, this guy came in in really bad shape today. We're going to take a light day so he can come back next time. Our deloading periods is to start alleviating more of that chronic accumulated fatigue. We have stressors throughout the week. We've accumulated weeks of hard training, and that fatigue, unfortunately, just doesn't go away on its own. So now we are actually taking a strategy that is meant to alleviate that long-term chronic accumulated fatigue. So our deload essentially is like a series of light days where we're reducing the training volume by about 50% throughout the week. What I also recommend is we see at least towards the end a reduction in the training intensity as well so that we can deal with things like microtrauma because the intensity of exercise is usually directly related to how much physical damage is actually inflicted on the tissue. So one thing that people get wrong a lot is they will um, maintain intensity throughout, which is okay because the volume is the bigger overriding factor, but it kind of tends to fail in that area of 
healing microtrauma. So we can start to see the effects of like overuse injuries or chronic nagging injuries kind of still hanging around. So we want to see a sig- oh, oh, I didn't mean to interrupt. Sorry, go ahead. I, I guess no, no, I, you're good. Please I guess I did, but yeah, once again, I think that the mechanical stresses of weight training are wildly underestimated by most trainees. You know, oh, yeah, always, man. They always want to measure performance and, and their well-being and their, you know, their kind of how they feel, how they perform, and they forget that even if they're succeeding, the mechanical forces and the mechanical stresses at work, that, that's a burden that has to, that's a toll that must be paid somewhere, some when. Absolutely. It's paid in your nervous system, and it's paid on the underlying tissues that, are that where that tension is being inflicted upon. So we got to keep in mind, too, right, there is the external stress of the weight literally crushing you, pushing down on you, but there's also the internal stress of you pulling on your tendons, your bones, and your muscles contracting. So you're getting it from both sides, the outside and from the inside. And that, like you said, that toll has to be paid, and we have to reduce the actual intensity of exercise at some point to alleviate that mechanical inflicted damage. So that's one thing we usually recommend. And then the question then usually becomes like, okay, well, how often should I be deloading? And we usually recommend, it kind of depends on how well-trained you are, but for kind of most intermediate kind of folks, we usually recommend every once every four to five weeks or so. So that would mean three weeks of training with one week of deload or four weeks of training with one week of deload at the end. And we usually pair the deload after the hardest period of training for that cycle. So I don't, I'm sure you might have heard this too, man, but you get a lot of guys who are like, yeah, man, I don't do that deload stuff. That's for wieners. Like, I don't do that. What's the real issue there, right? It's not that deloads are for wieners. It's that you are under training. You are training under what you probably could be doing. The deload is necessary to alleviate the, tr- uh, the, the fatigue from overloading training, right? If you are not pushing the boundaries of how much training you can tolerate, You're not getting as much out of your training as you can. But accordingly, when you push it, you have to back off so that we can stimulate recovery adaptation. So I get a lot of those guys, and I get some of my students sometimes are like, eh, deloads, I don't do that. Well, your training sucks, homeboy. I don't know what you want me to say. You're just not training hard enough, right? Like, So it's really what it comes down to. I, I hate to talk into a, a someone so much as I, but I really, I really want to say something here, and I really more want to say it to my listeners than I than I do to you because it's just the perfect segue. Uh, I have this the very conversation in which you're describing I have repeatedly, and about people not wanting to do, and I'm going to grit my teeth and say your word. I'm going to say deload. I fucking I want to I want to pr- step aside and say that I fucking hate that term. Furniture movers oh, okay. load a truck and then they deload a truck. I don't fucking deload. <laughs> I titrate my training volume and intensity. I don't fucking deload. I don't work for a moving company. But anyway. All right, fair enough. <laughs> I really fucking hate that term. But anyway, to, to yeah. my listeners out there, if you don't, quote, take a deload, people that actually train hard take a deload whether they want it or not because they fucking fail to maintain that level of effort and intensity. It's simply yes. an inevitability. If you are not, quote, deloading, it's because you're not working hard enough to deserve one. 100%. 100%. Okay, that's absolutely. Really, everyone out there, you need to re- re- rewind and listen to that again. It's fucking important, folks. It's <laughs> real. You're yeah, going to you know, deload the... whether you want to or not. It's just a matter of whether you're going to do it systematically or you're going to do it <laughs> at, at the behest of some barbell pinning you to the ground. Right. And, you know, the thing is, that's kind of what ends up happening, right, where you might not deload formally for a little while and you might be like, eh, I don't really need to. The problem is, is that you are accumulating chronic fatigue, right, and that literally does not go away. And it will manifest itself sooner or later. So like you said, perhaps you will get, you're going to get pinned 
under a squat, or you're going to have a really shitty couple of weeks and you'll start non-functional overreaching, or even worse, you'll start being subject to stupid things like overuse injuries, which are now, like you're going to get tendonitis or some dumb shit like that, and now you're not going to be able to bench press for months because you're dealing with tendonitis in your elbow or something, right? Something stupid like that, now that kicks you out of commission for longer than you even planned. So I like how you phrase that. You're going to do it one way or another, whether you planned it or otherwise. So that is 100% true. So, you know, it's like, sometimes this comes off as being like really aggressive and saying like, uh, you suck. It's not meant to, it's, it's just meant to illustrate, right? That you, again, it's that prerequisite step, that step zero. You have to be training within your MRV. Otherwise this stuff doesn't matter, right? So if you're saying, I don't need to deload, that means recoverability is not a limiting factor to your training because you're under training. That's what it comes back to. So that's kind of why we like to present that case right off the bat because we fall back on it a lot and say, well, that just means you're not training hard enough or, you know, and vice versa. So deloads are, Critical, you know, now it's something if you're working on a sports team where they have a season, you may not be doing formal deloads. You might be doing like more maintenance or more tapering kind of stuff. But some period, every mesocycle of training where you are taking time to alleviate that training fatigue is important and it should be done. And on a similar note, we can take our deload concept and we can blow it out a little bit further and we can look at things like actual active rest periods. This is something for, for any of you guys who are athletes is important. If you have, if you're a non-athlete, this is probably not super important to you, but an active rest period essentially is kind of like that same deload period, which is that series of light days, now maybe stretched out over the course of two or three weeks. When do we actually need this? This is done when you have really, really hard training for a prolonged period of time. So an example might be like somebody who was prepping for Rio, right? They were been grinding for the last couple years so that they could make the Olympics. They went to the Olympics. It was super hard, super stressful, and they come back stateside, and they're like, I don't want to see another fucking barbell ever again. I don't want to run. I don't want to kick a soccer ball. I don't want to do anything, right? I'm just fed up with it. This is the person who benefits from an active rest phase where they have just basically reached that breaking point of psychological and physical stressors and they have become incredibly disinterested and their desire to train is in the toilet. So one of the things that we can do is we can take that deload concept. We say, okay, well, what we're going to do is going to have you just take some active rest. So what I want you to do is for two or three weeks, you're just going to go and do whatever you want, right? I'm not going to tell you what to train. All I want you to do is to stay fit. Don't be a couch potato. You know, be reasonable with your, your your diet plan. Just go and stay fit, right? So if you want to go hit some shrugs in front of the dumbbell rack, fine. If you want to do some curls, fine. You want to do some leg press, fine. I don't care. Just go and do whatever you want to do. Come back and see me in about two or three weeks, and we'll see what happens. And what we find almost 100% of the time is allowing that person a little bit of autonomy in their training program gets them hungry and ready again to train. After a week or so, they'll start feeling better. After two weeks, they're going to be like, man, this is stupid. What am I doing? I need to get back to the gym and start training for my sport or whatever it is that I'm doing, right? And that almost always happens. So it helps cultivate that psychological drive. It helps alleviate those physical stressors. It basically auto-regulates physical stress, right? Because you say, just go train as much as you want. So they go and train as much as they want, which is usually indicative of how much training they can tolerate. And they come back hungry, ready to go. Now, if you're dealing with kind of mom and pop populations, right, like people who train a couple of times per week, this is probably not important for you at all. But if you're dealing with people who are trying to make the CrossFit Games or they're trying to go to World's Strongest Man or they're trying to win nationals or, or worlds for anything, right, this might be actually applicable where you have really long stretches of training that were grueling and you just need a little bit of time off, right? Works really well. And so you usually say this is something maybe two two times per year probably at the most. 
I can I could actually interject something funny there. Uh, b- before recording, I had mentioned that uh, one of the early people I met in the world of strength was Kenny Patera. And uh, actually, Ken Patera yeah, yeah. related a, a story completely appropriate to that, is that uh, that very concept consistently got him in hot water because his coaches would say that very thing is, you, know, you have two weeks of free active rest. Just do whatever you want. Come back in two weeks. We'll pick it up again. And he would consistently come back about 20 pounds lighter. And they were always scratching their head like, oh, wow. how the hell did this rest do this? And apparently, to Ken Patera, do whatever you want to do amounted to jogging. So his idea of fun recreational exercise oh, was funny. jogging. So you get this 300-pound asshole out there stomping around. <laughs> he would burn off 20 pounds of body weight and then come back in this, in this you know, hypertrophic hole. <laughs> oh, so my goodness. It, That's it's crazy. not a perfect scenario is all I'm saying. Yeah, you know, so there there has to be some like a, a you know some reasonable probably limits. So if you're a strength power sport, we say you know do strength power stuff preferably. But you know what? At the same time, if they are so burnt out from whatever it is that they're doing and they just cannot do that that bench press or that squat or that power clean or whatever, then fine, go do something else. And that actually is probably a better scenario in the long term because they will come back. And a lot of those changes, like two to three weeks of physiological change largely gets rebounded back to baseline oh, characteristics. Agreed. So it's like and not a huge deal. benefits probably way outweighs any physiological, you know, ad, mm. uh, you know, adaptational changes. You know, uh, the, the Russians are legendary. I've heard stories about the uh, these Russian lifters and Eastern Bloc lifters where they would do their weightlifting training or their powerlifting training cycles, and then they would go on active recovery for like a month where they would just just go across the world, visit new places, not train at all, right? Just do, just do diddly squat and then just go have a great time, like party, drink all over the world. And then they come back and it's this business, right? Then they get back to their normal, un, just crazy, crazy training routine. So you see some varying degrees of like how hardcore people take their active rest phases. You know, for the intermediate athlete, for somebody who's been training for five to 10 years or so, you know, we usually say probably two or three weeks of just kind of non-structured training is good enough. If you're a, I mean, if you're like a national world caliber athlete, you might have to peace out for a little while, like some of these guys, where they just say, I'm going to go party for a month, right? And then I'll you come back I, later when I feel better. I know this from my own personal experience. I wasn't able to do that emotionally until I was more than more than a little advanced, dare I say, you know, world class. And, and I think it honestly was just a confidence issue. At a given point, I realized, you know what, I can miss three months of training, and if I turn it on, it's on. It's and on. I, yeah. I think in that and you're not going to deteriorate. Stage, you don't have that level of confidence, and I think the idea of taking an extended period of, of non-sport competitive training is just too daunting. It's too frightening. I agree, right? And there's also something to be said about maintenance of motor skills where, like, the advanced athlete, you have done those movements. So many times. You can do it with your eyes closed. It doesn't take much effort, right? For the more intermediate athlete, a lot of those motor skills are still being refined. So that extra repetition throughout the year, even if it's like we talked about earlier, even if it's not meant to be super overloading, having that frequency, that reiteration of those motor patterns is probably a pretty good idea as well. And the actual psychological effects are probably not quite as daunting because you didn't do quite as grueling of a training program just yet. So, you know, there's there's pros and cons. So, but I think that is one that we can incorporate for our athletic populations. 
probably not one that we're going to incorporate for our health and fitness populations. So those are the big ones for active recovery, right? So we said passive recovery, active recovery. There's a couple other categories that I just wanted to touch on. The next big one, in my opinion, is nutrition. Now, I think you and I could probably have a whole separate discussion on nutrition, but just a couple of nuts and bolts things, right, like um, because I want to get into some of the other stuff. Nutrition is very, very powerful. One of the, the easiest alleviators of fatigue is eating enough calories, particularly eating enough carbohydrates. Carbohydrate is the primary energy substrate for all sporting exercise purposes. There are still these naysayers out there who think like, oh, you don't need carbs to live, so you don't need carbs to exercise. It's just complete nonsense, right? I'm talking, this is like textbook level stuff that we have known for decades, right? And it's been, and this is stuff that I teach in my class at Temple where we look at, you know, uh, substrate utilization rates during exercise. It's just one of these crazy things. So we say for sure, carbohydrate is directly related to exercise workload. It's also directly related to exercise intensity. So if you're training hard, you need to match your carbohydrate, blah, blah, excuse me, carbohydrate intake to your training loads. If that is something that you are not doing, it's probably going to be a good idea to start getting with a nutrition person, whether a sport nutrition or a registered dietitian, something along those lines. A um, couple other kind of points, and I know I'm kind of really glazing over nutrition. Sorry about this, but there's a couple other more interesting things I want to talk about. Um, alcohol. I get this one all the time. How much alcohol can I drink, right? Well, ideally, if you consider yourself to be a competitive athlete, probably none. It's probably as little as humanly possible. Zero alcohol. Answer for that, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's no nice way to say it, so we just got to put it out there, right? Alcohol makes you fatter and makes you potentially less muscular, meaning either you're not getting as muscular as you could be or you're potentially losing muscle mass as a result of alcohol consumption. Now, funny, you, funny you word it that way because I actually worded it an entirely different way. Uh, I, I, we, we have the same underlying point, but I tell people that alcohol is – toxin is a bad word. You sound a little bit like a, like a naturalist kook, but alcohol is a biological stressor. It's equal to training. Absolutely. It's, it's, a neg- it's a net negative. Anything, you know, you got an Man. equation, you got simple algebra, you got an equal sign in the middle, and you got some shit on one side and some shit on the other side. Every time you pile shit yeah. on this side, it's unbalanced with the other side. Pretty simple. Absolutely. And it, Alcohol's a negative. Yeah. If you want to drink it, that's that's one less set you can do. That's one less, you know, hour of training. It's just not a positive thing to do. It's not a positive thing to do. Now, one thing we got to keep in mind, right, so uh, it operates on dose response just like everything else, meaning the more alcohol you drink, the worse the effects. So does that mean that you can't go out and have beers with your homies or have, like, sushi and wine night with your girlfriends? No, absolutely not. But what we are saying is that, it is a direct negative effect, and they've actually very recently been able to show this at the cellular level. It downregulates some of the pathways that are promoting anabolism. It can upregulate some of the catabolic ones in some cases. Mostly it's just a negative effect. Like you said, there's no way around it. So what I like, you know, I have a ton of clients, RP clients, and they always ask me how much can I drink, and I say, you know what? It's a compromise, right? If you like to go out and socialize and drink and party, that's fine. Just know that your diet, your training is not going to go as well as it could. And so it's a lifestyle compromise that you're making. If you're okay with that, then that's great. Then it's totally fine. But if you are going to miss a lift, if you are not going to make weight, if your body composition looks like shit, and then you think, look at yourself in the mirror and you go, man, I am not happy with myself. Well, then you've got to go back and look at your habits and say, well, should I have cut down on that drinking? Probably the answer is yes. You know, So we say the less alcohol, probably the better. I'm not going to sit on uh, my Tecate high horse over here. I like to drink. I like to have beer. But I know that beer is negatively affecting me. And so it's a compromise that I'm willing to make because I like to drink. But 
in the back of my mind, I know I'm not maybe as being as strong as I could be, maybe not as lean or as muscular as I could be. So it's just a you know a cost benefit analysis there, just like anything else. So I'm, we say I'm, I'm, I'm very treatment. negative on alcohol. I personally haven't had a sip of alcohol in the 44 years that I've walked this earth. But uh, you know that's that's awesome. That's great, and you 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 have reaped the benefit of that with your performance, right? So for other people, they you know it's just they're just not willing to make that compromise. And you, you just have to have a good relationship with it, right? You just have to, like, be okay with it and say, like, I want to drink. I cannot have both. I cannot be a top athlete and drink a ton, right? If I want to drink, I'm probably not going to be a top athlete. And, you know, I'm okay with that. That's my life, and I'm happy with my life, right? That's what it really boils down to. Absolutely. So, Agreed. Agreed 100%. Okay. And so you say alcohol. It's a very, easily, a very easy factor to excise and become a non-factor. Exactly. So if you if you are if you are a, a world class athlete, this is usually a non issue, right? This is like we've already established this is a bad idea. For everyone else, there's you know you you weigh you weigh both sides of the equation. So on a similar note, uh, the other one we get a lot is stimulants. How much stimulant should I be taking? Stimulants, just like many other things, are literally stimulating a stress response, right? You're basically getting that same epinephrine, norepinephrine dump that when you take ca- caffeine or coffee or something. Just like you do when you're wigged out, right? And you're stressed out. So are stimulants good? Yeah, absolutely. They're one of the few supplements that actually have a distinct performance benefit, whereas most supplements are just total shit, total garbage. Stimulants actually can have a performance benefit. What's the downside? Well, the downside is they tend to inhibit your ability to relax, which we already said was important. And then if you take them late at night, they directly inhibit your ability to sleep, right, which is going to be a big one. So, again, a lot of people who will be like, man, I only sleep like three hours a night. I'll say, when do you train? They say, well, I train after work at, you know, 6 or 7 p.m. I say, do you take a pre-workout drink? And they go, yeah, I take, like, five scoops of no explode or whatever. And I'm like, well, cut that shit out because you're not sleeping because you're you're hyped up on stimulants and you just haven't come down yet. So that's one that we say try to try to manage. If you are um, working, if you're training throughout the day, stimulants are great. They'll keep you more alert. They can actually blunt hunger, which is another benefit for dieting. Yep. Um, but... Once your business for the day has ceased, you come home, no more training, no more work, just lay off the stimulants. No more soda, no more no more monsters, no more coffee when possible, just so that you can bring yourself into that more relaxed state and start winding down for rest, right? That's usually recommend for people. So just cool it on the stimulants when you don't really need them. You can use them when you need to be at work and when you need to be training. After that, back off. I, uh, I, I again, I agree entirely. Um, I, I'm actually uh, just just like the concept of the the, the wording of uh, a deload. I, I really am not a fan of this pre-workout nonsense. Uh, and again, I yeah, <laughs> I fully confess that I am a I am a coffee maniac. I literally have gone to geographic locations purely because of the coffee they grow there. I've literally oh, planned my travel around coffee, you know, farming. I, I love coffee. To me, it's a food and not a stimulant. But um, this this shit with pre workouts. If you need a fucking powder or potion to become motivated to take up, to to perform your workout, stop it. Stop getting in my way and take up fucking golf and go somewhere else. <laughs> Just stop that. I that is furious. You know, it's there is nothing. It's funny that you say that. That's going to make you want to be an athlete. If you need a potion, then you need to get out of my way. My, my pre-workout 100%. is getting out you of know, bed I, in the morning. I get out of the bed in the morning, the first thing I do is look at my wife and go, fuck, that's awesome. And then my next thought is, shit, I'm going to squat today. That's even more awesome. <laughs> that's, that's great. You know, I think 
I think there's a difference. There are, and I, I hear you 100%. There are absolutely those people out there who are, they will they will not do anything unless they get their pre workout. You know, I think if you if you like the way it makes you feel, like if you like the way that beta alanine tingling makes you feel, if you like feeling the stimulant effect, great. But I am with you 100%. If it's something that you can't live without, you can't train without it, like you really need to reconsider what you're doing because just take drugs at that point, right? Just get some heroin, exactly. have fun. Well, that's that, you, what you were saying. That that was for I, I I actually bit my tongue. Is you know if you like the way you feel when you're that's well then you're a meth head and that's fine. Yeah. But you don't need to be in the gym right. under my feet. Right. Totally. So uh, just re just reweigh what you actually want to get out of this. If you're not actually interested in fitness, then just take drugs and that's great. You get a much better effect. <laughs> so yeah, it's probably more cost effective too. Yeah. So we should. Sure, you know, yeah, I, I grew up in a, yeah. I'm I'm 30, right? So I kind of grew up in the generation of like supplements were like really on the rise and I was the guy who tried everything and it, it took me a lot of trial and error to figure out like, you know, all of this is basically bullshit. And then I got my education and I, you know, verified, but you know, actually I was right. Most of this was a waste of time and waste of money. So I grew up in that, that era of like, yeah, take the no explode. Yeah. Get the one rep max or one MR or whatever to try all these things. So I, I, you know, I think it's fun. I like to do it. But I'm I'm with you. It's not something that I I, it's, I get this. I like it from the drug effect, and I can say that very plainly. Right? I like the way it makes me feel. I don't need it to train. I just like the way it makes me feel, and that's fine. Just have a good relationship with it. Don't be don't be on your high horse about it. Right? That's Honesty is a powerful tool, my friend. Honesty. <laughs> yeah. I I know I I can't at times I sound like some kind of evangelical motivational speaker, but let me tell you, honesty will set you free. I don't give a shit what you do. Just don't lie to me about why you do it. That, and, and we're going to exactly. Be good. That's you know that's totally. all I need out of you. You know, I <laughs> like the assholes with, so the, say, with with the powerlifting gear. Like, don't make up dumbass reasons why you do it. You do it because you want to lift more weight. That's fine. If you oh, tell me that, 100%. I'll smile and walk away. I, but if you tell me you think about, that? about injury right? prevention and all this, now go fuck yourself. Oh. Get out of here, get out of here. Mike and I have, like, uh, been talking about, we think, we think, uh, you know, geared lifting is going to be basically on its way out very, very shortly. Cause it has been. The, it's, it's on a decline. The raw revolution is, like, out of control. Yeah. I just, I just, I just can't, I mean, like, you see these guys who are putting up numbers that are well far beyond what the geared lifters are doing now. They're doing it raw. Like, guys like Chad Wesley Smith, Milanachev, like, all these, they're just Dan Green, like, Unbelievable. It's just mind, it's a mind fuck. And you think like 10 years ago, 20 years ago, we had these geared lifters who were lifting less weight than they are. You know what's sad? And I'm old enough to say this with a straight face, and we've gotten a little off topic, but I'll say this and then we'll go right back to topic. Is you, you call it the raw revolution, and I appreciate that because I was on the cutting edge. I was actually, quote, raw well before it was cool. You know, I was squatting in the high sevens at 220. Uh, around, you know, 2001, 2002, um, you know, so I was doing that stuff. But the reality is this grand revolution is really only bringing us back to where we were when powerlifting started. If you go back and really? look. Oh, absolutely. That's the part people don't seem to remember. If you go back and look at the late 70s, you know, powerlifting's only been an organized sport since 1970. 1971 was the first world championship. Comedically, this is actually a true fact. The first world championship was held on November 1st, 1971. Lifting commenced at 9.30 a.m. Guess what else happened that very same day at the very same time? Got me. I came into this world. Drawing a blank. Oh, you were born. (laughs) November 6th, 1971, at 9.30 a.m. As the first official world championship commenced, I I was born. How's that for a fucking (laughs) thing? 
That's pretty cool. I was I was worried there for a moment. I was like, oh man, I hope he doesn't ask me history or geography questions. I'm terrible but, at those. But but my point is, if you look at even as early as that, there were guys. Um, the hammer thrower, famous hammer thrower. His name eludes me right this second. Uh. He just died a few years ago. Anyway, at 220, he squatted 777 at 220 in a belt and knee wraps in 1971. That's so sweet. I love that shit, man. I love now, those freaky, you stop and think about it, guys. That's just how strong people are now. And it's and now everybody's like, oh, my God, it's the greatest thing ever. And I'm like, no, we're just picking up where we left off, folks. This is how strong people that take drugs, lift weights, and and eat a lot of food. This is what it looks like. This is not some grand revelation. This is just what it's supposed to be. All that time people yeah. spent jerking off with rubber bands and chains, they weren't actually weight training, and now they are. And this is what it For looks sure. like, folks. You know, I think I think like when we say a raw revolution, I think it's more. Um, it's not. It's not about the roots of powerlifting. Rather, like the popularity where people were, were gravitating towards it and saying like this geared stuff is silly. Here's some gnarly guy. And like you said, it's been going on forever. But I just like it became, I guess, a little bit more mainstream. And I think that's like what got people excited seeing those guys who weren't just like you know looking ridiculous, super fat West Side guy in a suit. Right? There was these jack guys coming out who were strong as fuck, and everyone's ate it up. So I, and I, I was in the same boat where I was just like, oh, my God, who are these guys? This is crazy. <laughs> Absolutely. I, but anyway, well, I'll, I'll let that lie because I, I just – I could hate on the state of powerlifting from 1995 to 2005. I could hate on it for an endless okay. period of time because it was awful. It okay. was just appalling. It's just guys yeah. with a 1,000-pound bench press that literally couldn't do 405 correctly in, in their natural Yeah, get out of here. That's just, get, yeah, get out of here with that. It's shit. shameful. It's yeah. Really shameful. All right. So let's move back to recovery here. Yeah. Um, before we get too, too, tang- too tangential. Um, so we said, okay, we said passive recovery, training within the MRV, active recovery is all good. We said there's a lot of stuff in nutrition. We're going to kind of glaze over that because that's a whole nother, another discussion. A couple other things. Obviously, anabolic agents, and you are much more knowledgeable on the topic than I am in this regard, but anabolic agents are powerful, right? They're incredibly powerful for recovery. The, the only things are, you have to keep in mind is the, the legality of whatever you're doing and then whether or not your sport or federation allows you to do that. Other than that, from a physiological, from a science standpoint, they're amazing. They do unbelievable things, and they allow you to train at doses that are beyond your natural boundaries of recoverability, which makes them obviously a very uh, appealing choice for most athletes. So I'm sure you have beaten that one to death, and so I think we can glaze over that one a little bit. I think that's common knowledge at this point. One other one uh, that I think is worth noting for our absolutely good ones. And it's kind of a weird one. It has a gross name. It's called compassionate touching. So what this is gross, I know. It boils down to a pretty simple concept. Physical touch from another human being who is demonstrating compassion towards you in some capacity, whether it's a, a coach or a therapist or a loved one, seems to have a positive effect on perception of fatigue. Now, we have to keep in mind a like lot of this whole hands. It's it, this yeah. is li- literally going to biblical times in terms of medicine. But I'm I'm in, in, excited that you brought it up. Yeah, it's amazing. Now, what I want to confound there's a big confounder here, and that's actually if you look at the research on massage, if you look at okay, so compassionate touch, that sounds like massage, right? Well, okay, we can clump that in there. But the research on massage is really wacky, and what they have basically found is that massage is not um, a strong enough stimulus to actually enhance things like skeletal muscle blood flow. It only enhances very superficial like skin blood flow. And the major effect of massage 
seems to be almost entirely psychological. Right, where they have relaxation. Bam, you beat me to it. Relaxation is the physiological benefit, and then there is a psychological benefit of physical touch from a a human being who seems to be uh, invested in you in some way. So we say compassionate touch, geological variables, and then the other hand is actually just time spent relaxing. Now, this can be sexual or non-sexual. It can be from, you know, um, a spouse, a loved one. It can be from a friend or from uh, like a coach or a therapist. What they have shown with compassionate touch very often is that you cannot actually differentiate the therapy, the actual therapy being done, from the presence of the therapist. So we kind of clump them together and we say compassion and touch. We call it compassionate touch because the touch by itself seems to have some effect, but it cannot actually be differentiated from just knowing that there's a person out there who seems to be invested in your well-being in some way. Which so is funny, kind of social support. From a psychology point of view, you would bundle that into, in a, in, a, in a psychology purview, you would just bundle that into strong support group. Having someone and someone's vested in your performance seems to enhance your performance. It's quirky. Go figure, right? And, that, you know, and I, I don't claim to be a psychology person. I'm not in any way. But that is something that has been shown very, very distinctly, right? Having that social support, that therapeutic effect does seem to have a positive effect on fatigue alleviation and recovery. And it's like, shazam, it's very hard to argue against. So very, very positive. You had mentioned massage. I have two questions in relation to massage and chiropractic. Yeah, sure. Because personally, I consider them more uh, actual therapeutic modalities. I don't consider them recovery modalities as most people do. But my question is, where do they fit in in terms of the cost-benefit? A lot of times I suspect the mechanical manipulation of tissues, be it bone bone articulations or muscular tissues, can have such a – they could have a metabolic effect that causes an impact greater than their benefit to performance. Do you do you believe that? Do you find that? Are you aware of that? Um, it's hard to say because that's something that's very difficult to measure on a physiological scale. It depends on what kind of variables you're looking at. What I will say is this. If you look at stuff like chiropractic, right – and, and I'm not trying to shit on chiropractors out there, but what we find is that a lot of that stuff is not actually treatment. It's, it's kind of putting a bandage on the issue. They're not actually changing physiology. They are adjusting physiology to, uh, to elicit a temporary effect. That's not always true, but largely is true. What um, Massage kind of falls under the same thing. It makes you feel better at the time, but it doesn't actually have a change on physiology. It doesn't make your structures change. It doesn't make your origins and insertions change. It doesn't make the way your blood works change, right? So it's kind of a bandage on the wound. It helps you get through tough periods. Now, when we're talking about stressors and what uh, my colleague Scott Howell likes to call allostasis or allostatic load, you have to factor in all of those things, right? So if you undergo a really rigorous adjustment session from a chiropractor, as a sports scientist, as an exercise scientist, what I like to say is the following, and it's very stingy, and you feel free to call me out of my stinginess, but that is time spent that you could have either been training or doing a sufficient and adequate recovery method, right? Anything that is not contributing to your success in sport from training or from a recovery standpoint generally is superfluous, in my opinion. Now, if you... 100%. Okay, right. So I think we're on the same page here. So that you might say, like, okay, James, like you're telling me that me going to the chiropractor is really negatively affecting my performance. I'm saying maybe, right? Think about it. Is that time that you could have spent just relaxing instead of going to the the session? Yes. Is relaxation probably one of the biggest underlying components of recovery? 
Yes, absolutely. Or could you have just spent that time inflicting mechanical stressors on yourself in a different way? Could you have taken a light day? Could you have had an overload training session that day? I view the value of a chiropractor the same as the value of, say, a physical therapist. They are very good at what they do, but I hope I don't need that service because if it does, it means I fucked up. Yeah, and, you know, I, I'm not trying to discredit them in any way, and I've heard, I have heard people, you know, do that, and that's fine. I think it's something that is done on a needs basis, but it does Absolutely. not change. It does not change the physiology. It does not change. It's, a, it's something that, you know, it'll get you through whatever you need to get through. It's not, but you probably have a bigger problem that you need to deal with. Yeah, so. if you, you know, if you've made an error and had a, a, a very poor stance or something, and you literally caused a malalignment of articulations, you've, you've changed a bone position, which is possible. But, you know, if you do that, that's a medical condition. That's not a recovery issue. That's a medical yes, condition. Yes, yes. You are, you are broken, and you need to go get it repaired. Sure. And that's the job of you a chiropractor. Just as if I break something on my fucking automobile. I take it to, you know, I don't, I don't take it to, you know, a cook. I take it to an auto mechanic. It's pretty simple. Right tool yeah. for the right job. Right tool, you know, I'm glad you said that. This is something I preach in my uh, classes as an exercise scientist. We, we have a bad habit of people ask, is this good or bad, or is this right, or is this wrong? Really, we, we don't want to phrase our questions like that anymore. It's the wrong question. As an exercise scientist, I like to think of having tools in my toolkit, right? I have a big-ass fucking toolkit. So what people say is, hey, is this thing right or wrong? And I'll say, okay, I'm going to ask you to build a car. And I have a bunch of car parts on the floor, and I hand you a wrench. And I say, build me this car. You're going to take that wrench, and you're going to do all sorts of stuff with it. It's a great tool for the job. I'm going to take that wrench away, and I'm going to hand you a table saw, and you're going to look at me like, what the fuck is this table saw for? I'm going to say, well, keep building me that car. And you're going to go, what? Uh, give me the wrench back. I need that. This table saw is useless, right? It's not that the table saw is a bad tool. It's the wrong tool for the job. And that's kind of the way I like to think of a lot of these questions that come up in terms of training, recovery, nutrition. We say, you know, a lot of these things may have merit in some areas, but they come at a cost in other areas. So that's kind of, I think, an important part of critical thinking skills where we say it's not black and white. It's not good or bad or good versus evil. It's this is a tool. It's only as good as the wielder. Can the wielder use the tool in the most effective way? So that's kind of how I think of things and my Absolutely. stupid analogy for the day. It's shocking how similar people like you and I who come from very, very different points of view, very different pedigrees, and very different life and, and, and competitive sporting experiences, and we arrive at very, very similar, you know, ultimate conditions, yeah. ultimate positions. I, I really, I always find that fascinating, and I always kind of pat myself on the back as, the, as, as an underlying proof of correctness, proof of, proof of concept. <laughs> For sure. For sure. Let so, me play a little um, devil's advocate and just blurt out some... I, I wish I could have nicer language, but just blurt out some shit for, you know, when, when you get sure. into recovery modalities, there's always that fringe of people that are what I, what I call the CrossFit fringe. Even in powerlifting, even in strongman, even in, you know, competitive throwing, I always find that CrossFit fringe that want to throw out what I think of as CrossFit concepts. Where do you stand, where, where does goofy shit like cupping, uh, acupuncture, any, anything of yeah. that nature where, where would you put that on the scale of validity let's just let's just go through a whole bunch because there's a this is where we get to the meat and potatoes of the discussion right so there's a bunch of stuff out there there's a lot of crazy fun sexy looking things where you're like "Ooh, what's that guy doing that looks crazy should i be doing that here's the deal some of them have scientific support some of them have anecdotal support some of them have basically neither right and so let's just go through. So the first one you brought up, cupping. To my knowledge, there is no benefit of cupping outside of placebo effect at this point. 
They're, they're, it's thought to enhance blood flow. I doubt it's uh, sufficient enough of a stimulus to actually enhance muscle blood flow. It probably enhances skin blood flow to some extent. There is basically no science that I have come across that is reliable that says it has any effect on recovery whatsoever outside of placebo. Acupuncture, same thing, right? Acupuncture is used for things like pain management, therapeutic, uh, you know, spiritual, all sorts of crazy stuff in terms of recovery from training, meaning can you get back to doing overload training? Nothing, nothing as far as I'm concerned. And it's just one of those things, like it looks fun, it looks cool. It might have a role in things like pain management and injury management in terms of guys who and girls who just want to be bad motherfuckers and just train hard, probably nothing. A couple other ones that are cool and interesting. Thermal modalities, right? So using things like ice, um, ice bath, contrast bath, hot bath, uh, uh, cryo tubes, all that stuff. That's a really hot one right now. And as you said, that became very popularized by CrossFit, especially the cryo tube portion. They say, okay, do your CrossFit workout, jump in the cryo tube. Uh, is there validity there? What we actually find there is, yes, there's, that's one of those that kind of spilled over from athletic training where we say, okay, uh, temperature is really great for injury management. And we just assumed that it was good for recovery from exercise. And we lucked out on that when we actually got lucky and we said, yeah, that actually does enhance recovery. It allows you to get back to your baseline quicker. But nothing is for free. And what we have found is that using those thermal modalities, so if you ice up, if you do contrast bath, if you do hot bath, or if you do a crowd tube, it allows you to get back on your feet quicker, but it blunts all the natural inflammatory responses that you generate from training. Guess what? Guess what? Yeah, you know where this is going, right? Well, guess what? That inflammation. The, the, the hidden science of athletics. Nobody will talk about arachidonic acid and all the various inflammatory oh, yeah. muscle growth. This is something I've told people a hundred times, and they look at me with that same stupid glazed-over look, what I, what I think of as the glazed donut look. Exercise, hypertrophy, is an it's an immune response. Yes. And, there's and there's other did... things, right, too. There's, there's mechanical responses. There is, are, there's chemo responses. But that immune response from the, inflict, the damage that you have inflicted on yourself is a big part of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's the initial trigger. Everything else flows downhill from that. If you don't have that, it's, it's one of the reasons NSAIDs are such a bad idea, circuit training. Exactly. Totally. But anyway. So what we find, yeah, no, you, you, you hit it right on the head. So what we find is that, right, that inflammation that you generate from training is the snowball that starts the avalanche, right? If you take the snowball away, there's no avalanche. And what we have found, and this is becoming more and more quantitative, more and more evidence to suggest this, that doing those methods seems to blunt the adaptive response. So what's the, what's the benefit? You recover a little bit faster. What's the cost? You don't get quite as much out of your training as you normally would. So what is the effect size, right? Is it, does it mean that you don't get stronger or you don't get more muscular? No, not at all. What it means is you got a lot stronger just from doing regular training, and that gets diminished a little bit if you do the recovery modality. So what we usually say is, you know, if you are dealing with somebody who is a developing athlete, like they are relatively new to training and they have a long way to go, or you're really just focused on generating long-term fitness gains, this is probably something that you want to avoid and not use as much as, as possible. If you are a highly competitive athlete and you are, if you're like a baseball player or a hockey player or a basketball player and you play four or five games per week, you, you are favoring recovery over adaptation at this point. Why? Because you just need to be able to play. You don't really need, you're not worried about like how much stronger you're getting from all these basketball games. You're worried about being able to play basketball. So that might be an instance where using the thermal methods is actually a good idea. So again, we've got to do cost-benefit analysis. That's the idea. So on a very similar note, they've also looked at compression. 
So compression, uh, whether it's a compression garment, not like the, the training spandex. So, like, I like to wear spandex in training. We're not talking about our normal training spandex. We're talking about those heavy, 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 super tight, compressive garments that really constrict your skin and your muscles and your blood flow. And we're also, within that, we're also looking bandage, at... A, a, t- a tight binding of a body part. Yeah. So a, a very constrictive uh, thing on the arms, legs, feet kind of thing. And also, one of my personal favorites is uh, the uh, peristaltic compressive devices. The, uh, the, have you heard of the Normatec recovery system at all? The, the yeah. pants that's been really popular lately? Yep. So they basically like these big-ass snow pants, and they make arms and hips and other stuff too, but the, the most common are the legs. They make these big-ass snow pants that have an air compressor hooked up, and it pushes waves of compressed air through the pants. So they have looked at compression, and they said, okay, does compression affect recovery? And what we have found is the exact same relationship that we just described with the thermal, where in slightly different mechanisms, it does help prevent a lot of the inflammation. So the compression is really good for regulating things like temperature, edema, swelling, stuff like that. Wickedly valuable therapeutics, post-surgery, post-trauma. Wickedly, yes, wickedly yes. valuable. Great for injury, right? I had an ACL uh, uh, surgery back in the day. My knee turned into a watermelon. I needed that compressive sleeve to reduce the swelling. Not a great idea necessarily for training because it has the same constrictions. Now, I have actually gotten a hand, my hands on a, a set of Normatec recovery system, and I've been experimenting with it for relaxing. It just feels nice. And whether that actually translates to an effect remains to be seen, but I can tell you, you put them on, you sit on the couch for 30 minutes, and it feels great, and you just relax. One thing they have shown with compression is that it can actually be sufficient enough of a stimulus to stimulate and enhance skeletal muscle blood flow, so venous and arterial blood flow, whereas massage cannot. It's not sufficient enough. Compression can, especially using a pneumatic like uh, a device like the Normatec system. Unfortunately for us, there's just not enough science and not enough research to say yes or no. There's only a couple studies. There's a lot of anecdote. There's a lot of stuff being done in the field, but there's just not enough science to say, yes, this is a good idea to do all the time. And what I would recommend is that it probably falls under the same constrictions. You gain recovery at the cost of adaptation, probably good during highly competitive phases, probably bad during, like, hypertrophy um, or kind of your baseline training phases. Does that make sense? And, and I and that's one when we really began this conversation. I you know one of my major questions to you was going to be no matter how good or bad this stuff is, what is the cost of it? What is the metabolic and physiological cost? You know there there's a, a I, for the life of me can't remember the author and I'm ter- shockingly embarrassed. There's a book called the, the Cost of Life, the Price of Life, mm. and it was literally one of the early pieces that influenced me actually. Pre- caused me to go into the field of biology is just how fundamentally obvious this became to me is that everything you do, no matter how good or bad, has a cost in terms of calories burned, endocrinological impact. Everything you do costs something, and at what point is it beneficial or detrimental? Exactly. Nothing's for free, right? So that's kind of going back to that same discussion. We say it's a tool. What is the benefit? What is the cost of using this tool? You can momentarily influence physiology but at a cost. And, you know, ultimately, does that cost fit into your budget? And that's really what it comes down to. Yeah, well, that's the other thing, too. Yeah, so some of this stuff is expensive, right? Like the Normatec yeah. pants. Well, when I say uh, budget, I mean, you know, I, I meant that as in terms of like a biological concept. But, yeah, oh, there's, yeah. there's that, too. You know, there's, Financial there's, cost, too. Yeah, there's, there's financial um, cost. And something you were talking about with the – like scheduling, you know, massage and, and chiropractic and, and, and saunas and all this stuff. There's also the emotional cost. At some point, the burden of just getting this shit done is overwhelming. 
Um, I oh, think yeah. Too much to themselves play. in modalities where just sitting the fuck down would be so much more beneficial. Oh, man, god damn it. I'm glad you said that. So that's the thing, right? All Most of the, the confounders for all of these things is just relaxation. And MRV, right? Those are the if, if if you guys aren't really paying attention at this point anymore, tune back in because the really the only things that you have to think about really when it comes down to the real nitty gritty is MRV. Are you doing as much training as you can and still make positive improvements? And are you setting aside time throughout the day where you are relaxing, whether that's sleeping or otherwise, right? You need to relax. There's no other way around it. All this shit can go out the window, right? Recovery dance out the window. Ice, crowd tube, out the window. None of this shit matters if you're not doing those things. That's what it really boils down to. So, and like you said, it becomes overwhelming. This is, you know, the questions I get all the time. How much, how much dose should I be taking of, you know, GH or whatever? How much time should I spend in the tube? How much pre-workout should I take? None of that shit matters. Are you training hard? Are you sleeping? Are you eating enough? Those are like the big ones, right? And then are you taking time out of the day to relax? Like that, uh, the rest of this shit doesn't matter. So it's just like, like the uh, electrical stimulation, like the stim units and that. Do you, yeah, yeah. Do you fit that into your concepts of, mo- of recovery modalities? Or is that, has been, I would put it, in the therapeutic realm? I, you know, my personal opinion is this. It's therapeutic. There is no direct evidence to suggest that stim has a role in exercise recovery. Stim is amazing for pain management. So it's, it's a therapeutic modality for people who are dealing with pain or injury. Really good for that. And here's another thing. So let's just throw, let's just throw stim a freebie. Let's just say, you know what? Maybe there is an effect on recovery of stim from twitching the muscles, right? Let me ask you this. Would you rather, uh, essentially the following? If you had a choice and you were going to be expending energy, right, to enhance your recovery in some way. So like you said, it comes at a biological cost. In this case, it's energy. So you have this machine that's electrically twitching you that still requires energy, by the way, right? So are you going to, are you going to do that? Or could you maybe just take a light day where you come in and then you actually get to continue practicing your sport skills and your sport tactics to get a well-established effect, right? That's the case that I would make and say, like, so you're going to be electrically stimulated or which can give you a, a maybe effect, or you can take a light training day, which actually stimulates blood flow to the working muscles. It requires you to actually make a voluntary movement, and you get to reinforce your sports skills at the same time and to get a, a good effect, right? That's my thing. It's like, it just seems silly Funny, to me. I was like, going to take the half step. It's interesting you lo- leapt that far ahead of me. I was going to say, to me, the concept of, like, putting an electrical stim on your quads, to me, just go take a fucking walk. Just go. Right, yeah, exactly. If, take, if you just want to activate your quads, just... Go to the grocery store and walk the fuck around. It's just that, like it just seems odd that you would rather be manually stimulated than like you know than just going out and doing whatever it is that you're passionate about. It's funny you say that. We we live in the world of internet porn. <laughs> we, yeah. We live in we live in a world of artificial yeah. stimulation. That may that may be in fact the trend of the future. I think, you know, I think it's just one of those fun, sexy things. People have money. They want to spend it on toys. And they say, oh, okay, I'm going to get, like, the STEM unit because it's, like, a cool, sexy, trendy thing. I say, like, you know, what's wrong with going in and just taking a light day? I, I, I beat that to death already. I'm sorry. But I, I just think, no, I I think it's good. I agree with you entirely. It's funny, though, that I'm, I think of myself as particularly hardcore, and I took the half step to, to just a leisurely walk, and you just went to, well, fuck, go squat, you idiot. Yeah, well, it's like the same thing with like, again, I, I like to use rugby because that's the sport I'm involved in. It's like, are you going to sit on the couch or you can you go and throw the rugby ball around with your friends? Like, you know, like you obviously are doing this for rugby. Why not play rugby? Like, it's, so, yeah, it's just, it, it, I, 
you don't know how much I agree with you. It's just funny the difference in language and and, and different uh, arrival trajectories. But we're, we're at the very yeah. same place. We really are. That's funny. so. I say stem kind of out the window. Now, again, if you're recovering from injury, you have a lot of pain, there's a definite role for that. But again, that's therapy. That's not recovery from training. That's the difference right. there. I, I, I sincerely believe that a lot of this migration of therapeutic tools into the hands of, of, of non-therapeutic practitioners has been a net negative. I, I've said that from the beginning. Yeah. But, you know, I still think the responsibility is on the consumer, right? You have to be educated and you have to know what you're getting yourself into, right? Of course they're going to make products that look fun and sexy. They're going to put it on the, the infomercial, say like, oh, yeah, you want six-pack abs? Use this fucking stim thing. Well, you have to know better. You have to look at it and say, you know, it's probably not that simple, right? It's probably there's something more to it than that. And I think you have to – and that's where, like, having a coach – or getting your education, or just staying involved in the field, you know, really pays its dividends, where you say, like, ah, you know, like, that's that's come and gone, or, like, I, I know a better way to get the same effect, or, you know, whatever. Or, or like I tell the West Side people over and over with their rubber bands and their chains, maybe just paying attention to junior high and learning the fundamental laws of physics. That that, that probably yeah. has some value, too. That's too that's too much. No way. <laughs> ask, a, ask a West Side guy to explain torque. It's not going to happen. <laughs> right, yeah. Explain to me rotary motion at the axis, and they look at you and go, I'm gonna hang a chain on it. All right, fine. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're gonna get we're gonna get a fallback from that, and we're gonna get a bunch of emails They're like, yeah, excuse oh, me, yeah, I know exactly. People already hate me. me. They they hate me at a distance. I'm I'm in a burning pool of white hot hate just from the oh those people. <laughs> I, I I've I've made Louis Simmons go into convulsions personally. Oh God. I, I, yeah, I, I, I try to avoid that. I'm his ultimate antagonist for two reasons. One, I actually understand the laws of physics, and two, I can speak. So the, between the two of them, yeah, real hard to argue. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, STEM is one of those, like, kind of, it's uh, on a, a weird level. Another one that's come up is the, uh, and I'm going to get this wrong, I think it's called the Q laser. It's something that's kind of been used in medicine and therapy. Essentially, yeah. it's just an infrared laser, which enhances blood flow at the local targeted tissue. So that's something that's being used right now in therapy. People have asked, like, is this something that could play a role in recovery? I don't know. It could. We haven't used it yet. I don't know if it's, like, commercially available on that level, and I I, I honestly would not do it. I, I think, again, it's one of those things, like, so you're going to shoot yourself with a laser before you try some of these other basic things, right? It seems just kind of silly at that point. Uh, is there now, a place? I want to go way out on a limb and could, because – one, it's kind of my job, and two, I find it interesting, and three, I find you interesting, so I'm, I'm curious what your response is going to be. Okay. Um, and I'm building up for a reason, because I want to go a little bit off the reservation, but I, I actually have ulterior motives. Concepts you put forward is really is training as fucking hard as you can. Literally train to the point where your performance flags and then back off a little. That's where you need to be training, which is literally light years beyond where most people are training. And then the mm -hmm. second major concept is calm the fuck down and relax. Yes. Okay. That's where I want to go. Do you find any value? Do you know of people using pharmacological means to medicate the relaxation to positive benefit? You know, this is a, a gray area where some of it's legal, some of it's not legal. So, for example, uh, in mixed martial arts, there's a group of fighters like the Diaz brothers and many others uh, I, you know, I don't want to say advocate, but it seems like they publicly accept the use of marijuana 
Absolutely. As part of their training tool to relax. Well, it, now, this is an unpopular, un, I don't say unreported, but I, it's not commonly repeated, but Arnold did the same thing. Arnold trained like an asshole. He trained like a maniac. And he went home and he yeah. smoked and sat. You know what, man? Here's the deal. Is there an effect of like smoking or using other drugs uh, on your physiology? Probably not. But is there an effect of relaxation? Absolutely. So if you use those things and they allow you to relax harder than a motherfucker, like you've ever relaxed before, that's great, and you probably will reap the benefit. Now, what I what I will say is, be smart. Like I'm not encouraging anyone to do illegal stuff, but if it's something that you're already doing and you're saying, hey, does this fit into my, my grand scheme? I'd say probably, right? Now, um, again, is there a physical effect? Is there a physiological effect? Like is smoking marijuana going to make you a, a badass strength athlete? Absolutely not. But will it help you relax? Will it help you unwind when you might be having difficulty? Like if you're somebody who does carry a lot of chronic stress, you do have a hard time turning it off when you go home. Might that be helpful? Yeah, absolutely. I think so. I think there's a place for that. But, you know, again, obviously just disclaimer, don't, don't get in trouble. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Agreed. I've I've literally uh, in the UK. I'm, I'm really I'm really well communicated with uh, a lot of UK strength athletes. Just a quirk. I had no desire to seek them out. They just we found each other, and I, I, they're my brethren. Um, there's a really really strong and potentially problematic issue of. Um, Opioid use among strength athletes in the UK. Um, oh yeah, that's that's not right. Using uh, you know Vicodin, uh, Percocet, and and Valium even as long term you know daily you know therapeutic modulators to you know reduce uh, the sympathetic nervous system essentially. Yeah, there's a big problem with that. A huge, a couple problems that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, the problem, the first first problem comes back to something we already talked about. If you need pain meds to get through the day. Your training is fucked, right? You need yep. to go back to step zero, and you got to go reassess your MRV because you are having a really hard time. At that point, you are probably training beyond the limits of your recoverability by definition. Even if you are using other drugs like anabolics to help you, you're still probably pushing it too much. you got to go back to MRV. So problem number two is um, how many times have you, like, done a deadlift or a squat or something, and you felt that little twinge maybe in your knee or in your back, and you're like, Ooh, that's that's not good, right? Uh, and then you maybe unrack the bar and you shake it out a little bit and you try it again and there it is again. And you're like, ah, damn, my back or my leg today. What what do most normal people do? They say, you know what? I'm gonna maybe just call it a day and maybe move on to something else. See what I can do pain free. Maybe I'm just having an off day, right? That's kind of the normal person thing. What happens when you're doped up on pain meds? You don't even fucking notice. You don't notice those little twinges because you're yep. high as hell. Right? And what ends up happening? Well, that little micro trauma, that little bit of stressor that you had, now you keep training on it, you keep training, you keep training on it, now it becomes a macro trauma, right? Now you are susceptible to major, major injury, which is a problem. I, you know, again, I like to use rugby. Rugby is the scum of the earth. They're the worst people on the planet. It's like ISIS and then men and women's rugby. They're terrible. So they are guilty of doing the same thing. They will use a lot of uh, pain meds, especially like before a game. And what happens? Well, they'll get their foot ripped off, and then they'll run all the way down the field, leaving their foot behind because they didn't notice they got, you know, their foot torn off. Right? That's not true, but you get the idea. So we just don't want to rely on pain meds because a, you are actually doing a bad job with your training. B, you are going to be more susceptible to injury because you may not notice those problems that are arising just as a result of being doped up. High-level athletics ultimately dependent on feedback. They <laughs> could do something to dull the feedback. Yeah. You've got false information or no information, and you make poor decisions. 100%. You know, I mean, like, and I'm, I'm not saying that you shouldn't use those things, right? They have a therapeutic purpose. If you're dealing with pain and stuff, that's fine. 
it's on a needs basis is what I can tell people. NSAIDs, uh, more powerful pain meds like opioids, needs basis, right? If you're having a shitty day and you need to pop some pills to get through it, that's cool, right? You strained your back, you need a little bit of pills. That's normal, right? If you cannot get through a training session without using those things, that is not normal. That's not okay. You need to go back to step zero and reassess how much training you're doing. That's uh, that's all just extraordinary stuff. And it, it's it's refreshing and, and enlightening to have someone like you put it together in such a coherent fashion. But it's also... Um, Thank you. I, I very much appreciate the fact that you took the time to distill it to its fundamentals, which a lot of, and, and I, I hope I'm not just blatantly, blanketly insulting your creed, but a lot of uh, academics and intellectuals fail to do that, to distill it down to the fundamental points, which is training volume and relaxation. Uh, yeah, which, I think that's an important thing. Like, you know, Mike and I like, and I, I say Mike, Mike is my roommate, by the way. Him and I have been good friends and we actually live together. Um, you know, one of the things that we like to preach is that there's a, there's a borderline. It's not like there's, I don't know if you follow, some people on social media say like, don't listen to the academics. They are like, are just like nerdy scientists. And then there's the other camp that says like, okay, well don't listen to the coaches. They're all just meatheads, right? What we like to strike the balance is somewhere in between, right? We think the best practitioners, and I'm not saying this includes myself necessarily, but we say the people who are the best out there in the field right now fall back on the most knowledge that they have available. They look at the science. They look at what everything has gone on in research, and they say, okay, I have this knowledge base, but I also have this plethora of experience that I can fall back on. Maybe I have collected my own data on my own athletes, or I've kept good logs, or I've just known a lot of people and I've done a lot of things and I can blend those two things together where I say I have experience and I have knowledge and I can synthesize what I think are the most important training plans or the most important concepts to my athletes. And that's something that I, I'm very passionate about. It's not a polar spectrum. It's not like, you know, we got Mordor over here and Gondor over here or, you know what I'm saying? It's like we have somewhere in between where the best coaches, the best scientists are people who can synthesize both of those things and they can, that's, that is what true evidence-based practice is. It's not just saying, well, I only look at science. Science is the only thing. Science is important. And obviously, I have a PhD, so I think so. I value science quite a bit. But I also value that experience and that what other people have done, what trial and error has shown me, what has my own athletes, have, what have they done? What can I say for my own experimentation, right? Like, I think the best people are going to be right in that middle. So, and like you said, a lot of academics fall short in that regard. They just say, well, there's no papers on that, so I can't comment Something that's come up in this podcast over and over and over is the whole idea of uh, folks, boys and girls, listeners, if you're still with us at this late date, the whole idea of science is to ask new questions, not just answer the old ones. Every answer should make two or three new questions, new and interesting questions. If that's not the case, you're really not pursuing science. You're just placating yourself. Absolutely. And, you know, like we don't we don't pretend like we have all the answers. You know, I think some of the things that uh, Mike and I talk about, like you said, we say train hard, train until you can't really train anymore. Take time, eat the right food, take time to recover. Is it really that simple? No. But at the same time, it really is, at, you know, concurrently where we have thousands of other things, thousands of other sub questions that we can ask about each one of those things. But they all tend to converge around those major concepts. So, you know, some people say, like, there's, a, there's also a group of thought where people are like, well, just fucking train, man. Like, don't be a bitch. Well, yeah, there's, it's, there's that, but there's also another layer to it. And there's more onion layers to kind of peel back when we say, okay, well, what, what are the underlying concepts of recovery, right? And that's kind of like one question that I was asking and saying, you know, is it this, do I apply this medical model, this therapeutic model, 
or are there independent things that I need to consider? And that was kind of the how I started looking at this question, and that's why I started researching it. So it's not just like, shut up, man, like you're being a bitch, go train, or you need to just sleep more. It's part of it, but there's deeper levels as well. So it's, it's, that's the joy of being in science. We never have all the answers. We just should try to know the best that we can at the time. I absolutely agree entirely, and that is a perfect jumping-off point to wrap this particular podcast up. Uh, Dr. James Hoffman, I have to say that this is this did live up to my expectation. This is the podcast that nobody knew they needed, but every single person, every single one of my listeners does need and should listen to maybe twice, absorb that, really think about those points. And uh, something that I offer to almost all my guests, and you certainly are the grand recipient, if you ever feel compelled to have anything additional to say on this topic or any other, you have an open pass. You are welcome anytime to talk on any subject. I couldn't be more excited that you joined us, and I would jump at the opportunity to have you back. Oh, thank you. It's very flattering, and I had a great time talking with you. It's really great. You know, a lot of times we just get kind of like, what do you think about CrossFit type questions? So it's it's nice to have a little bit more depth and a a much more thorough discussion. So I had a great time. Thank you very much for having me. And then lastly, um, something that I tend to fail on and not do enough is – Offer yourself up to the public. Where can they find you? Where can they get more Dr. James? Uh, you know, how can they, you know, pay you, for instance? How can how can a listener employ you or use <laughs> your services and uh, just get more Dr. James Hoffman? Where, where, where does that happen? Oh, well, thanks. Well, first and foremost, I work at Temple University. I'm the interim director of our exercise and sports sciences program. You can find me there. I'm a sport performance consultant for Renaissance Periodization. I know that's a mouthful. It's Renaissance periodization and then you know you can check me out on social media i'm on facebook it's just it's just myself james hoffman jr and i'm on instagram as uh, rp dr james i usually just post really stupid things about the world of heavy metal and my cats but every now and again i'll throw some sports science out there so feel free i love to interact i love to talk shop would love to uh, get to know some of you guys all right well i have no doubt that uh, more than a few of my listeners will take you up on that i have a pretty vocal crowd that follows so uh be, be prepared for that but uh, beyond that, for sure. I just, I really deeply want to thank you for being here. And uh, listeners, we're going to sign off. We'll be back next month with another exciting uh, and hopefully entertaining and elucidating episode of Sports Performance Radio. Don't forget to sign up for the SPR and Evil Genius Sports Performance Newsletter via the Team Evil GSP website. Thank you for listening to Sports Performance Radio.